It's Cam. I'm stoked to have you here. Really, it has been a, a wild ride so far. Story of the modern age, I suppose, and today we're going to be discussing something that comes from a different age. I'm not sure which age, but I suppose one from quite some time ago. It's the story of meditation, how a meditative practice of spiritual nourishment and connectiveness manifests in very real, very tangible neurobiological changes. We're going to discuss the various regions of the brain involved in meditation, and how these concepts are translated from ideas to physical, lasting changes that seamlessly integrate into an existence rich in awareness. We're going to talk about why a scattered mind is a normal mind and why an inability to focus during meditation tends to reflect a difficulty in focusing in everyday life and how some of the side benefits of meditation can be seen in a stronger ability to sustain that direct attention and an ability to more easily recognize our conditioned responses and modulate them in a way that results in a profound ability to begin again. We dive into what it really means to accept and surrender and how these meditative concepts can be integrated and embodied into daily life and how doing so can make that traffic jam not only a less miserable experience but potentially a joyful one. And of course all of these topics are just concepts until we put them into practice. So that's what we're going to do. Welcome to This Might Be Helpful. I sincerely hope it is. Now, as I've said before, there is no single way to meditate. There are a vast array of techniques and processes at our disposal, and each one is colored with their own cultural interpretation, depending on where and when they came into practice. Now, many of these techniques could fit into one of two categories, focused attention or open monitoring practices. Now, recently, the categorization of embodied meditation has found its way into the mainstream practice, but that is a podcast for another day. Today, we're going to be discussing and focusing on some of the barriers to meditation and why they are often our strongest reasons to meditate. But we're going to be looking at it through the lens of neuroscience. Now, looking at the neurobiological facets of meditation, which regions of the brain are most active and how they translate into our psychological manifestations of mind, body, spirit, awareness, perception, and emotion. And the regions of the brain, in no explicit order, are the prefrontal cortex, the somatomotor cortex, the insula, the hippocampus, the anterior cingulate cortex, and the orbitofrontal cortex. I haven't included the pineal gland in this list, as that wonderful little organ really deserves its own episode. So starting off, again, in no particular order, is the prefrontal cortex. Now, this prefrontal cortex is the region of our brain responsible for higher-order thinking, the processing of complex abstract information, and metacognition. Metacognition being the term we use to describe thinking about thinking, the awareness of your own thought processes and patterns, the awareness of the self, of the I. And next we have the somatomotor cortex. This region processes somatosensory and motor information. It helps to receive and process sensory information across your body, such as touch, temperature, and pain. And it's been shown that long-term meditators have a higher tolerance to pain, or a lower pain sensitivity, whichever suits you, in addition to a diminished perception of unpleasant, painful, or uncomfortable stimuli. And here's where we really start to see an intersection between the quantitative data of hard science and the more ineffable science that is spirituality or self-mastery. This diminished perception of discomfort is something that starts off as a real choice. 
a surrendering to what is, an acceptance without attachment, experiencing the sensory information as it is, without the addition of our own layer of suffering about the suffering. For example, when we attach and react to a form of stimuli, we give it more power. We assign extra emotional capital to that which needs no investment. Sad about being sad, angry about being mad, frustrated at the cold, the heat, the aches, and the pains. However, as the meditative concept of surrendering becomes a habit, many of these very physical and tangible experiences lose their significance, their power. Now, because of the wonder of neuroplasticity, this habit manifests in structural changes in the form of sensory motor neuroplasticity, altering the pathways from this sensory region to the regions like the prefrontal cortex, hippocampus, and anterior cingulate cortex. So the same information is still received, the aches, the pains, the heat, the cold, but the pathways that the information takes to get from the somatomotor cortex, somatomotor cortex, that word is a real struggle for me, to these other processing and perceiving regions changes. So it's, it's like realizing that there's a road home from work that you never knew was there. It doesn't show up on the GPS. The destination is the same, but this new road detours the traffic, skirts around the potholes, and it's shaded by old oak trees, meandering through wooded glens and over bubbling brooks. What starts as a concept manifests in structural neurobiological changes. Next is the insula. This insula is a small region in the cerebral cortex located deep within the lateral sulcus, which is a large fissure, a crevice, so to speak, that separates the frontal and the parietal lobes from the temporal lobe. Now, the insula is involved in intensive, explicit focus on interoceptive awareness. Interoceptive being the perception of sensations from within your body, such as your breathing, your heartbeat, your body posture, and your temperature. Now, this little region is what kicks in when you ask yourself, how do I feel? How do you feel? Ask yourself that right now. Take a moment to be mindful of the sensations going on within your body. Is there tightness in your shoulders, in your hips, any aches and pains in your neck? What regions of your body are storing energy? Which regions are kinked? Is there an anxiety going on? Is there a flutter in your chest? Is there discomfort in your stomach? Is there a pain behind the eyes? Really tuning in with this sensory information, locating it, and giving it a name, trying to correlate it with whatever kind of uh, thoughts are manifesting as a result or in addition, in conjunction with those very physical feelings. Now next we have the hippocampus, and this is located in the intermedial region of the temporal lobe, forming part of the limbic system, and this region is particularly important in regulating emotional responses. So the hippocampus is critical for memory consolidation and contextualized emotional learning. When an experience makes you feel good, this is where you put that response. The same goes for potentially negative experiences and potentially maladaptive responses. Next, the have, next we have the anterior cingulate cortex. Next, we have the anterior cingulate cortex, and this is largely responsible for self-control, for focused problem-solving and adaptive, or in some cases, maladaptive behavioral responses. It's where some of our responsive programming is stored, the stuff that kicks in when we get stressed and tired, rejected, hurt, angry, happy, morose. 
it could be said that the manifestations and responsibilities of this region come into particular focus when we think about the reasons for meditation. Self-control, deliberation, and responsiveness will, over time, replace the instinctive reactivity that's been wired into us through our learned responses. Now finally, the orbitofrontal cortex is the area of the prefrontal cortex that sits right behind your eyes, at the very front of your brain, and this region has extensive connections with the sensory areas as well as the limbic structures involved in emotion and memory. Now, what does all this mean? These are just big words, are they not? Neuroanatomy, how does that come into play with meditation? And obviously it makes sense. We use our brains to meditate, but let's look at it through the lens of, of mindfulness meditation. Mindfulness meditation is a form of meditation that you will see most consistently these days, especially when portrayed by westernized platforms and media sources such as the Apple App Store, fitness magazines, or the Daily Mail. And for good reason. Mindfulness meditation modulates our ability to focus sustain our attention, develop stronger emotional regulation skills, and enhance our self-awareness. And it's suggested that this enhanced attention control is related to an increase in anterior cingulate cortex and orbital frontal cortex activity, resulting in a more comprehensive awareness of thoughts, their, their origins, their repetitive nature, and the subconscious patterns that facilitate their apparition. Now, those that have been engaged in the practice of mindfulness meditation appear to make more conscious, deliberate decisions, and they tend to pay greater attention during those executions of decisions. Meditators also tend to report lower intensity and frequency of negative emotions, stemming from an ability to recalibrate, to find center, to begin again. This, in turn, helps to prompt improved positive mood states, indicating a form of efficiency when it comes to dealing with negative emotions. So being able to take those feelings and emotions at face value, experience them for what they are without assigning that extra emotional capital and adding on that special layer of suffering that apparently humans are very good at doing. Now, if discussed through the lens of hard data and modern neuroscience, some of the mastery of emotions that we're talking about here may be attributed to a shift in the way we conduct self-referential processing, i.e. the perception of all that is self and the pathways involved in that perception. So the shift in discussion here is one from an attached, effective, and subjective valuation to a more self-detached and objective analysis of that interoceptive and exteroceptive sensory data. And if discussed through the lens of a more traditional, cultural, historical practice, we may look at this shift as one from separateness, of duality, to one of oneness and non-duality, singularity. A divergence from viewing the self as something separate from nature, separate from the universe, separate from the source, the divine or God, to one that is self-detached and paradoxically completely intertwined with the inner workings of our universe. Now you might be asking, why don't I experience this when I meditate? Where is the universal connectivity you're talking about? The alignment with the powers of the universe I just have racing thoughts when I sit down and close my eyes. And to that, I say, this is a good thing. Meditation is not about having no thoughts. 
It's about developing the ability to recognize and observe our thoughts. The ability to recognize and observe our emotions, to feel them without getting in our own way. But to answer this, I'm going to bring into light the proposed stages of meditative development. Now, of course, what it is to follow is a sweeping generalization. There is no distinct timeline that one could expect to experience these different stages in, nor should we bring any form of expectation into a meditative practice, as that in itself negates one of the core purposes of meditation, which is to surrender, exist, and be without projecting our own desires into our practice. <clears throat> intention is a different thing. I go into many of my meditations with an intention, whether that intention is to cultivate peace, foster happiness, expand awareness, gain clarity. That is my intention, but I do my best to remove any expectation from that, which is difficult because you will have meditative experiences that transcend your expectation. And what this does is whenever an experience exceeds a previous experience, that new experience becomes the foundation and baseline for your future expectations of experience. And of course, unless that experience keeps getting better, keeps getting bigger, keeps getting stronger and grander, then we are undoubtedly going to experience disappointment because disappointment arises when we do not get what we expect. So it's a conscious decision to go into it with an intention, without expectation. Now, in the earliest stage of meditation, the meditator begins to overcome the habitual process of internally reacting to their emotions. This is indicated by heightened activity in the prefrontal cortex. Now, this process is one that occurs naturally if the meditator sits through the experience. If the meditator denies the subconscious urges to get up and do something more stimulating, to get up and do anything else that isn't just sitting here and feeling all these feelings, by bringing it back to the breath, or the feeling of clothes on their skin, the sound of birds chirping, or the beat of their heart, the meditator is now telling their subconscious mind that it is no longer the decisive governing force of their mind. Now, in the second stage, meditators face the perpetual challenge of the wandering mind, and they focus their will towards overcoming its wandering ways. This stage is much like training a puppy, but the puppy is the one in control and the meditator is along for the ride. And quite often, very often, the meditator will unconsciously follow a thought on a wandering road to a wayward destination they've been a thousand times before. When the conscious realization of this occurs, the meditator brings their focus back to that interoception, their breath, their heartbeat, the feeling of clothes on their skin and the wind on their face. It is a constant recalibration, a constant reminding, a constant recentering and bringing back to that focal point. Now, again, right here, we're talking about that focused attention style of meditation as opposed to the open monitoring that is more so just sitting and existing and coating your awareness over everything that comes into the sphere of consciousness that is you. So this mindfulness meditation tends to be more directive in its intentions more focused deliberately on certain aspects of interoception, like what's going on within us, or exteroception, so the world and all of its stimuli around us. Now in the last stage, if we could ever actually have a last stage, 
the meditator relies less on conscious prefrontal control and directive reattention. Rather, these processes developed in the former stages have become autonomous, habitual. By automating a response of acceptance towards their experience and everything that arises within their realm of consciousness, the meditator can more effortlessly deal with their fluctuating mood states and the events that occur in their lives. Because, again, meditation is not about having no thoughts and it's not about having no emotions. It's about developing the ability to respond to those things rather than be consumed by them. Now, what we see here is what the purpose of meditation is. You know, meditation as a practice is, is not something that dissipates once you get up. The concept of meditation and all that goes with it is something that becomes embodied into every aspect of your daily life. How you interact with others, how you interact with yourself, how you integrate and connect with the universe and the world around you and the one within you. What began as a practice, as discomfort, as boredom, has now become the baseline for all of existence. And this is what the path of least resistance is. It's not laying down and surrendering to getting kicked in the guts. It's the realization and true understanding that what is, is what is. What will be, will be. And the position of neutrality is where one gains the greatest field of view. And thus the greatest purity of clarity and awareness. By climbing the mountain, we see all that surrounds us. By gaining higher ground, we may choose the path that reflects us best. Because the truth is that if you were to have no thoughts, it would be very concerning indeed. You experience tens of thousands of thoughts per day, and most of these thoughts are repetitions, duplicates, the same questions, the same objections, over and over and over. And when we meditate, we come directly into contact with a seemingly never-ending stream of thoughts, and that's because that stream is never-ending. Whether you're just starting meditation or whether you've been meditating for years, the first several minutes of meditation can often be a psychological onslaught of thoughts. What should I have for dinner tonight? Did I reply to Brenda's text? Ah, oh, I've forgotten to pay my electricity bill. Didn't Dan look great in his wedding photos? Where will I have my wedding? I'd like to do it next to a river, somewhere in the woods. I've always liked woods. I've always liked the look of rustic farmhouses. Geez, the price of milk has been creeping up lately. Good thing I'm lactose intolerant, and we bring it back to the breath. Back to the heartbeat. Bring it back to the wind, the air, the birds, the aches, the pains, the spectrum of existence and experience that resides within you. Within the space between two thoughts. The silence between the notes and the notes themselves. The beginning, the middle, the end, all at once, because you are the key to it all, and you are the all to which there is no key, the divine, the source, the universe, consciousness, God, you are the space in which it all occurs. I'll see you next week.